Hi, I'm Nim, and this is a spoonful of medicine, topping up your paediatric knowledge one spoonful at a time. On this week's episode, we're learning all about hearing loss in children. How is it assessed? How does it present? What causes it? And how is it managed? To walk us through this world of audiology, we're joined by Dr. Sri Athel, who is a consultant paediatric audiologist in North Queensland, Australia, and whose patient catchment spans the size of a few European countries. So, if you want to learn a little bit more about hearing loss in children, listen up. Let's start the show. Hi, Shri. Thank you so much for joining us and being willing to teach us a bit more about hearing loss in children. But before we begin, can you tell us a little bit about what made you interested in paediatric audiology? Audiology in general is fascinating because it's quite objective. And then I love working with um, uh, equipment and then numbers. And that's what drew me into audiology. Pediatric audiology in special because the kids are fun to work with. Though they say don't work with babies and animals, I still love working with children. And uh, like you. You've got a captive (laughs) audience here. Yeah. And um, they're quite complex and they can be quite challenging. And it just doesn't work. One test doesn't work like as we do with adults. So you have to be quick on your feet and then like, you know, adapt the test uh, according to their needs. So it's, it's a very challenging area. And I just love that kind of challenge. Well, it's good to have people like you who like the challenge and like the kids to be assessing them all. So before we start talking about hearing loss in children, can we kind of backtrack a little bit and start with the basics? How do we hear? In order to answer that question, let me just go to the very basic anatomy of the ear. We have got two ears and then we need good working ears to be able to function quite well. So if you look at the anatomy, we have the outer ear, the middle ear, the inner ear, and then the central auditory system, which starts with the auditory nerve, brainstem, and then the cortex. You need both the ears to be able to get that stereo uh, hearing. Otherwise, you lose that sort of you know, stereo hearing and it's everything just becomes a unilateral one. So when we talk about normal hearing, we need two good working ears. There's other part to the hearing is the physics of the sound. When we say normal hearing, we have the frequencies. Speech has got lots of different frequencies. And the sounds we hear in day-to-day life has got lots of different frequencies. So when we assess the hearing, we have to assess the different frequencies. It's like you split the white light into different colors and you assess the individual colors for color blindness. Similarly, you split the sound into different frequencies and test the individual frequencies. If you're able to hear all these frequencies within 0 to 20 decibels, you consider it as normal hearing. And we need that normal hearing in both ears. So if the the hearing threshold is more than 20 decibels across any of the frequencies in any ear, then a person is considered to have a hearing loss. The assessment of hearing depends upon the age. So we get the similar information, but the tests we employ are very age-dependent. One thing that we do get um, taught about in medical school, and we have very rudimentary tests for, is air conduction versus bone conduction. 
What's the difference and why is it important to know what the difference is? Have you heard yourself um, on, on a recorded message or a video recording and then you feel, gee, this doesn't sound like my voice? I must admit, every time I listen to these podcasts, I think, gosh, I don't sound like that. Yeah, that's because when you hear other people talk or any other sound, your entire auditory system is being um, involved. Like, so you start from the outer ear, the sound goes through your outer ear, middle ear, inner ear, and through the auditory nerve to your cortex. That's how you hear. But when you're talking and you're hearing your own voice, your skull bones vibrate, and that vibration is passed on to the inner ear directly. So your outer and the middle ear is not taking part, and it goes into the inner ear directly. That is a bone conduction. And when you record your voice and then you listen to it, so it goes through your air conduction. So the mechanism is different. And that's why you feel, oh, they're very different. The importance of that is when we assess the hearing, the air conduction gives us the degree of hearing loss or the hearing thresholds. And the bone conduction testing tells us where the problem is, whether it's in the middle ear or the inner ear. You earlier briefly mentioned that there's different types of tests that you can do that assess different points of where the hearing pathology could be, but also different tests for different age groups. Can you tell us a bit about what these tests are and what each test assesses or looks at in depth? The main tests that we use are otoscopy, that is to get an idea of like, you know, what the ear looks like and then if there's any blockage in the ear canal and then what's happening with their um, ears. Apart from the visual examination, the objective tests that we use are the tympanometry and tympanometry gives some pressure to the ear and then it also gives some sounds to the ear to check the mobility of the eardrum. You give the sound first and then the eardrum moves. And then you change the pressure in the ear canal and you see how the eardrum moves at different pressure points. And that gives you a graph called the tympanogram, I think which you may have seen in your clinics. There are three types. Uh, A type is a normal one, which is a good looking like a peak, a a small mountain. And um, that has got shows that it's normal eardrum mobility and then the middle ear is aerated. If it's a flat line, that means the eardrum is very stiff. No matter how much pressure you apply, it's not moving quite well. That's usually indicative of a middle-ear pathology. And in children, it's very often due to the middle-ear effusion of the fluid. The other one is a C-type where there's a peak, but it's moved to a negative uh, side, negative pressure side. You see that in eustachian tube function in kids often when they're teething or when they have a cold, it's very common to get that um, blockage and the eustachian tube dysfunction. There's another new test in the horizon for middle-ear assessment, and that's called the wideband absorbance. And that it's quite interesting because it gives a range of frequencies, and we test how much of energy goes into the middle ear and how much of energy gets reflected. So if the middle ear is functioning normally, we get, do get a pattern where the absorption is the best in the mid frequencies, whereas depending upon the middle ear pathologies, we do get different patterns that suggest what's can be happening behind the eardrum, like fusion or if there's ossicular dysfunction or if there's a perforation, we can identify. So it's a better test than the uh, the standard tympanometry. We 
now move on to the next test, which is the autoacoustic emission. This test is the test of the inner ear. So we give some sounds to the ear, and that travels through the middle ear and into the inner ear. And when it hits the inner ear, it produces an echo that comes out again, which we can record in the ear canal. If the hearing is normal, up to the level of the ear, and if the middle ear is functioning normally, then we get strong responses. So a present autoacoustic emission shows us that the hearing is normal up to the level of the ear. But the inner ear. Inner ear. But if the emissions are absent, it's not diagnostic because you don't know whether the problem is because of the middle ear or the inner ear. And that's when we go on to the, the next test, which is the auditory brainstem response or the ABR. There are different kinds of uh, ABR testing. One of the ABR testing is the click ABR, which we um, use to check the functioning of the auditory nerve. So when we hear the sound, so when we give a present a sound to the ear, the auditory nerves fire rapidly in unison, giving an action potential. So we get a very strong response. If there's a hearing loss, depending upon the type of hearing loss, the pattern can differ. So using ABR, we can accurately assess what's the level of the hearing thresholds in the um, infants. Or with the complex children where we cannot um, measure by any other means, it's the best way to assess the hearing threshold of children. And with the ABR, can that be done um, while the children's are sat in a room? Do they need to be asleep? Do they need to be sedated? How um, much, I guess, compliance do you need from a child to do an in-depth assessment like an ABR? Because it's an electrophysiological test, any movement can actually affect the uh, the pattern of the EEG. So we want the infant or child to be quite you know, um, stable and not moving. And with children, you know, we can't get them to be that still. So the best way is to for them to be either uh, under natural sleep or if it's um, not possible at all, then we try with sedation. And some kids fight that sedation, so we take them under GA. With older children, if they are compliant, if they're watching um, a DVD or like you know, on their phone, but very quiet, and then we can still go ahead with that testing. So the other test we use is the cortical evoke potential. That is another objective test that checks the response of the auditory cortex. So with certain kinds of hearing loss where we are not sure whether the problem is within the inner ear or whether it's in the auditory nerve or even with complex children when we cannot assess their ABR thresholds, we do see them for cortical uh, evoked response where we present some speech sounds and record the cortical responses. That gives us the degree of hearing loss and that helps us with the management. Um, that's not done very commonly, but that's done only in special instances where we need that extra information. The final test is a behavior assessment. It's no matter how many electrophysiological tests you do, the best thing is to assess itself you know, functionally. So if you've got a hand problem, the best thing is to you know, assess the movement of the hand apart from all the measurements that you can do. Similarly, behavioral testing is like you know, when you hear the response, you, you're hearing a sound, you do a response. And that, again, is age-dependent. With the children, young children, if they're nine-month-old kids, what we do is we present a sound, and then when the child turns towards a sound, we give a reinforcer, like we present a, a puppet or like you know a picture, so the kid 
is reinforced for that response. And then we condition to that response and then we go on changing the stimulus and the level to see what's the minimum level that the child responds to. And that's how we assess a young uh, infant. Whereas with the older children, like a three-year-old child, we can do a conditioning play out of it. Like, you know, we give a sound and then we have a game. Like the kid does a puzzle piece or like it does stack something. So it's a game for the kid, but still it's a response for the sound. With the older children, like when you give a sound, we have an indicator. So they press a button every time they hear the sound. So the test the concept is similar, but the way you do it differs according to their age. So now that we have a really good understanding of what tests are adopted or, and used um, to assess a child's hearing, if we go back clinically, how do these different age groups of children present um, with hearing loss? Because I'd imagined a, a nine-month-old baby would present very differently to a three or four year old child who would also present a little differently to say an adolescent. If it's a neonate, usually it's lack of response to sound. So the infant doesn't startle to loud sound or if the kids are playing around and the children can still sleep quite well. So that sort of you know, alerts the parents or inconsistent response to sound. Like the child responds sometimes, especially if there's a unilateral hearing loss or there's a difference in hearing, you can see that kind of inconsistent responses to sound. With the toddlers, say up to about three years of age, there are different ways that can manifest. The main one is um, speech development is delayed. So their speech is not in uh, age appropriate or if they're speaking, the speech is quite unintelligible. The other one is um, they would have had recurrent middle ear infections. So there's because of that, they also tend to lose balance a lot and they're quite clumsy. And the parents often, often say complain of the clumsiness apart from their hearing difficulties. Um, then they have a poor sense of sound localization. They cannot say which direction the sound is coming from. So they uh, they can seem to be a bit confused, especially like in, in a playground. Um, they cannot say where the sound is coming from. When you talk to them, they don't respond to as um, they should be uh, according to their age. And with the Older children, if it's a, if they miss out on something on the speech, they can actually fill in the gaps because they've got that adequate knowledge of the language. With the, with the very young children, because their language is developing, if they hear the sounds here and there, they don't get the whole sentence. If it doesn't make sense to them, they don't respond to the speech. So you t- see that they can, the child, the parents say, no, no, he just ignores us. Now I have to call about three, four times before he responds. By the fourth time, they would have raised their voice so the child actually can hear everything clearly and that's how the child responds. So it can manifest in different ways. Coming to the older children, um, it's mainly like, you know, asking for repetition. They say, huh? Or like, you know, what do you say? And um, or misinterpreting the information. You say something they do, but then they do uh, very differently. So misinterpreting is quite um, common. Um, Poor attention because... If you have to listen with hearing difficulty throughout the classroom session at school, you use so much of your energy there and then they tend to lose concentration towards the end. And that also shows us tiredness and irritability at the end of the day. Lastly, they they can show as poor academic progress or having difficulties at school. So there can be different ways they do manifest apart from just not being able to hear. 
so moving on from that, I'd imagine if you see those signs or symptoms in a child, that would be a reason to refer them into an audiologist. But aside from those clear sort of behavioural changes that you may see in a child, what are the common indications for a referral that you see in your practice? If it's a neonate or young infant, the common reasons are bacterial meningitis, history of bacterial meningitis, uh, not so much viral, but bacterial, yes, because it can cause immediate hearing loss in one or both ears. Um, and lack of response to sound, the parental concern for lack of response. In a toddler, history of recurrent ear infections. And apart from the signs that we have discussed about, um, it's the history of recurrent ear infection, poor sleep, because if they have adenoids and tonsils, enlarged adenoids and tonsils, they get poor sleep and then the poor irritability. So like, you know, that um, is another common reason for referral. Um, In the older children, if there's a family history of hearing loss, or even that's also the case even with the toddlers too because hearing loss, if it's in the families, it can start around the three years of age. Um, in the older children, again, it's a family history of hearing loss because um, condition like autosclerosis can occur during the teenage years when there's a hormonal change that can trigger um, autosclerosis as well. So family history of late onset of hearing loss, parental or teacher concerns, um, history of head trauma, any um, issues at school, like, you know, especially it can show as a psychosomatic um, uh, condition where children can mimic uh, hearing loss because of a lot of stresses at school or at home. Um, If they are having prolonged antibiotic treatment or um, they're on uh, chemotherapy drugs, especially cisplatin. And you have mentioned a few kind of common reasons for hearing loss in in amongst those indications for referral. But if we sort of look at common and significant pathologies that cause hearing loss in children, um, do you mind kind of breaking that down for us again in those neonatal slash infant, toddler and older age groups? Mm -hmm. Um, With neonates, the common um, uh, pathologies are um, bacterial meningitis, um, hyperbilirubinemia, or congenital CMV, and because congenital CMV can cause a, a delayed onset and then it can even lead to about profound hearing loss later on in life. Um, genetic uh, or the family history of hearing loss, and the common ones are the uh, the connection um, uh, genes, if you know, and that can um, cause hearing loss. Um, other syndromes like Penred or Usher's, um, yeah, Waterberg, they can um, be associated with hearing loss. Um, and any craniofacial anomalies like, you know, cleft palate or micronathia that are usually associated with um, you know, ear condition. With toddlers, the common conditions are recurrent ear infections. And especially at the time of teething, they, they do commonly present with the effusion as well. But history of recurrent inf- infections, about four infections or more in a year. Again, history of congenital CMV because it can occur during the second year of life. And um, enlarged vestibular aqueduct. Sometimes the kids can have normal hearing. And if they have had a significant impact on their head with a fall, and then that can trigger the hearing loss. So if the parents complain that the child is not responding the same way after like you know, a fall, then you need to look into that history of a fall and then enlarge vestibular aqueduct. With the older kids, 
um, usually it can be head trauma, any trauma to the uh, temporal bone especially. Um, and that then, causes the auto, the ossicular chain dysfunction from it that? Can, it can either cause the ossicular chain dysfunction or it can cause the fracture of the cochlear so in a region and it can even cause a, a total hearing loss as well. So it can be the middle ear or inner ear problem. It can be um, due to autosclerosis, which is, again, a familial uh, history of hearing loss. Um, barotrauma, if they are into diving or, like, you know, sudden change of pressure can cause um, uh, barotrauma as well. And um, drug toxicity, if they, like, as antibiotics and um, chemotherapy. So now that we have an idea of kind of common pathologies and also significant pathologies that can cause hearing loss in children... What's the sort of overarching or a summary of the paradigms or options for management of hearing loss in children? With young children, if they have passed the newborn screening and if they have had the history of like, you know, um, the high risk factor for hearing loss, we monitor them through targeted surveillance later of age. So the monitoring is one option. The main management can fall in three categories. One is a medical management, like if there's history of recurrent ear infections. Either it can be nasal sprays or decongestants or the antibiotic treatment. If there is cystic fibrosis, again, they're medically managed. With surgical treatment, it can be either history of grommets or it can be, uh, if there's autosclerosis, stepidectomy can be uh, one of the options. Um, and uh, if there's a permanent uh, significant hearing loss, then cochlear implant is one of the options. Finally, the rehabilitative options or non-medical or non-surgical option is going for the hearing aids, depending upon the degree of hearing loss. And these days, the hearing aids are so good. Like, you know, they, they are so tuned to individual configuration of the hearing uh, loss. So either hearing aids or amplification devices um, are very helpful for these children. That's been such a helpful quick tour around hearing loss in children. Thank you so much for joining us, Shree. My pleasure, Nim. Let's have a recap. Hearing loss in children can be defined as mild, moderate, significant or profound. There are multiple tests that are used to assess hearing in children. These include otoscopy, which assesses the outer ear up to the tympanic membrane, tympanometry and wideband absorbance, or WBA, assess the tympanic membrane and then the middle ear. We then have autoacoustic emissions that assess the inner ear and cochlea. We also have auditory brainstem response, or ABR, and this assesses the inner ear, the brainstem, and the auditory nerve itself. We also have cortical evoked potentials, and this assesses the auditory cortex. And finally, we have a behavioural assessment that is a functional assessment of a child's hearing. Hearing loss can manifest in many ways in a child. In infants, it can present as a lack of response or inconsistent responses to sounds. In toddlers, their speech may not be appropriate for their age. They may have recurrent ear infections. They may have a poor sense of sound direction or sound localization. They may not pay attention to what they're told. And also, they may have autism spectrum disorder, disorder type behaviours such as poor social interaction and hypersensitivity due to the issues with hearing. In older children, 
They may present with frequently asking for repeats on instructions. They may be tired and irritable, or have a poor attention span in class. Additionally, they may have slow progress academically because hearing in class is a challenge for them. Common reasons to refer a child to an audiologist include if you see any features or behaviours that suggest a hearing loss, in infants if they have a history of bacterial meningitis, or if there's concern from the parent about hearing loss, in toddlers if they show any signs of hearing loss, as well as if they have recurrent ear infections. In older children, they may have a family history of hearing loss or autosclerosis. There may be parental or teacher concerns that hearing is an issue for this child. Additionally, they may have had a significant temporal head trauma that causes a cochlear fracture or a secular chain dysfunction, and that is a re- reason to refer. Also, this child may have had prolonged antibiotic use, such as gentamicin, that causes ototoxicity, or they may have had chemotherapy, such as cisplatin, that can also cause hearing loss. Next, the common pathologies that are seen in children that cause hearing loss include in neonates, bacterial meningitis, hyperbilirubinemia, congenital CMV, genetics, including Connexin 26 mutations, syndromes such as Wardenberg syndrome, Usher syndrome, and Pendred syndrome, along with craniofacial anomalies. In toddlers, They may have recurrent ear infections that causes issues with hearing. They may have had congenital CMV. Additionally, a differential enlarged vestibular aqueduct should also be considered if there's sudden hearing loss. In older children, they may have otosclerosis that also may present at the time of puberty due to hormonal changes. They may have ossicular chain dysfunction following a temporal head trauma. It could be as a result of barotrauma, such as diving or skydiving, and then followed by deep sea diving. They also may have hearing loss caused by drug toxicities, such as antibiotics, as well as cisplatin. Occasionally, stress or psychosomatic problems can present as hearing loss in older children. Finally, hearing loss is managed in three main ways in children. The first being medical. Second, surgical, and finally, amplification devices. And that's been this week's episode of A Spoonful of Medicine. Thank you so much for joining us. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and tell a friend. For the visual learners of us out there, head over to our Instagram page, at spoonful.of.medicine, for a quick summary of today's episode, along with some other great educational content. If you'd like to get in touch, have a suggestion for a future episode, or have heard something that you think needs a correction, please email us on spoonfulofmedicinepodcast at gmail.com. It's been a pleasure topping up your paediatric knowledge one spoonful at a time. I can't wait for you to join us on our next episode. But until then, bye.